And I told Barry Windham, you wait and see. I don't know when, I don't know where it'll be, but sometime Lex Luger will let you down. He won't be there when you need him the most. From Television City in Hollywood. This podcast is a member of the Place to Be Nation family. Visit us at placetobenation.com. The only place to be in your pop culture world. Discretionary viewer participation is advised for the following professional wrestling exhibition. Due to the coronavirus pandemic, Greetings from Allentown is not taped in front of a live studio audience. Welcome to episode 174 of Greetings from Allentown. I am your host, Peter Winson. And today, going to be looking at the same date as last week, May 7th, 1988, this time in the other promotion down in Atlanta for some Jim Crockett promotions. NWA Pro is the show because Worldwide isn't on YouTube, and I just generally, generally tend to try and lean on whatever's there. And I figured I did this once before with May Actually, it was July the 7th, 1990, with a WWF show and a NWA show. And then I also threw in a USWA Texas one as well. I don't know if I'll do a third one for this date. I looked at the World Class show. I think I might have talked about this last week. And a lot of it is highlights of stuff that had happened before. Because some, at some points in 1988, World Class was kind of lacking in inspiration. Early in the year, they had some... Good stuff for sure, so I'm not going to crap entirely on it. And I had not covered anything from JCP in the second quarter of 1988 because, you know, i got to break everything up into a basketball game now. I've done a show from February of that year, and I've done a show from September and then November. So now to look in the second quarter just to kind of remember how things were, I guess. But here we got kind of the main story. Uh, well, actually, the convergence of the two main stories that are going on in the NWA, Jim Crockett Promotions at this time. The heel turn of Barry Windham, which they're kind of saying came out of nowhere, but really didn't because of some actual hand-to-God storytelling that they were doing. And also, the Dusty Rhodes <laughs> disappearance, and now all of a sudden a guy who is shaped exactly like Dusty Rhodes is there, and talks exactly like him, called The Midnight Rider. And 1988 is fun for me because it was the first year I ever watched wrestling. And God, I, you know, I don't know, it fills me with a sense of hope that, that maybe I can feel that way that I felt again. But it's highly unlikely considering that I actually thought about turning on the TV until I remembered that it might be on the USA Network, which means I might accidentally get to see Dolph Ziggler in a world title program. Now, let me just say, if they wonder why nobody watches anymore, yeah, the fact that there's no crowd and, you know, it's just kind of a bummer to watch it, that's one thing. But how how many freaking years does Dolph Ziggler have to be there before you're just going to cut him loose? Because he gets paid like a million and a half dollars for this. Let's think about that. Think about all the wrestlers over time who were just woefully underpaid and were actually talented and brought something to the table. And this clown 
who has been there forever and basically nobody cares about him anymore. And now all of a sudden he's being pushed as a top guy again. And you wonder why WWE is going down the tubes. Anyway, I kind of want to keep it positive here and have positive energy. But before I you know, display any of that, let me get in my plugs. You can email the show, Allentown at gmail.com. And on Twitter, at GFAllentownPod, that is at GFAllentownPod. Twitter, Facebook, still very much a cesspool. I, I go through random people's feeds sometimes, and I don't recommend that at all because you're going to be depressed one way or the other. So just just don't even don't even bother with that. But I did tweet a little bit more in the last week, did I? I don't I don't even know if I did because uh, I'm not really keeping track of anything. As you know, we just kind of bound through time at this point where. It's, oh, well, today was the second day that I worked this week, so it must be Tuesday. One of those deals. Although, I'm glad that I'm taking July 2nd off of work, because that'll lead to a long weekend. I technically have not taken a day off of work since January 2nd. And even that was doctor-mandated after my surgery. I mean, I literally had a doctor's note for that. And it's strange, because now I work in a job that has unlimited PTO, you know, used within reason. Of course, that's the big thing that companies do now is they'll offer unlimited PTO and there's a benefit in that. Number one, they never have to pay out for any unused vacation time. And number two, people are more or less guilted into not only staying within the structure of a three, four week plan that you would be offering otherwise, but sometimes even less than that. But then again, Looking at this year, it's been six months, and where exactly am I going to go? I talked about how I was going to go to Kansas City for my annual baseball trip. Well, after a while, it's pretty clear that there's not going to be baseball, but I still held out hope to be able to go there and see some things. I've been there twice before, but like I've never been to the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. And I definitely wanted to go there after I found out the other day about this Wonderful game played 95 years ago this week where a Negro Leagues team beat a like team of Klansmen in Wichita. I have no idea how that game ended up happening, which is why I wanted to go to the museum and check out the little exhibit about it. But sadly, I canceled my flight to Kansas City last week, which was no longer a direct flight anyway, which kind of sucked because I, I paid more for that flight. Because, number one, because it was direct, and number two, I just got an unfortunate taste for the whole Comfort Plus scene on Delta. And, you know, I I wanted to have a free beer, or a free bourbon, or a cocktail, or what have you. Of course, Delta no longer even has drinks on the plane uh, of that sort, as I understand it, based on, on what I read. But that's not really too important. I mean, I took a look around. It's like, okay, I could go to Missouri. The problem is, do I trust other people to, you know, treat this seriously, i.e. social distance, i.e. wear a mask? You take a look around at these states, and I can't help but laugh. And, and I, I don't mean to, like, laugh at people's demise. I'm talking about the arrogant as f- politicians in Texas and Florida. Each of them prematurely took a victory lap thinking that this whole thing was over because clearly if you want somebody who understands a virus that, well, 
honestly, we haven't seen before. That's why it's a novel coronavirus. You would go to somebody who would be elected governor of Florida. It's probably, you know, cheating in that election. I mean, pretty much every single southern state has that. I mean, that's what happens when you close 3,000 polling places saying, well, you know, we got the virus, but then you only close those polling places in African-American communities and you leave one polling place open in the largest county in the state. Look it in your direction, Kentucky. I don't, I don't mean to, you know, pick on other states. I, I want to reserve some venom for them too. I mean, Kentucky is so bad, they're making me hate bourbon at this point. That, that's how bad that state is. But back to Texas and Florida. I think it was the, the guy from Texas who tweeted out this factually false thing where it's like, Texas and Florida have no, have a, but, you know, balanced budgets and, New York and California have all this debt. Yeah, because you're counting all this pension debt in the future, and you guys in Florida and Texas have the exact same pension stuff. But what I'm wondering is, oh, you're just going to declare this whole thing over because, oh, apparently the sunlight is just going to kill it, right? Gee, I, I wonder what's happening when you got all these countries undergoing Russia, Brazil, the in parts of the United States. Gee, what do what do those places have in common? Morons, morons, morons. Obviously, when I say that, I'm not talking about everybody who lives in that state. I'm talking about the general leadership of Texas, of Florida. Although Florida has its certain insanity to it, that you know, kind of is in its own little category. That that's why that's why God put Florida in like a corner of the country so that it wouldn't border on as in many states. I, I think that's it, it, it's intelligent design, <laughs> which some of the people down there believe in. But that's that's for another time. It's just I've made it a point during all of this to kind of quote unquote keep score of everything that's going on. With what leaders say. Now, the experts on viruses are not going to be correct all the time, but I'm certainly going to take their word for it over some craven politician, especially one in Texas and Florida who are taking victory laps for something when the game isn't over. They had a 28 to 3 lead over coronavirus in the third quarter, and they decided, yeah, you know what? We're, we're going <laughs> to. We're going to snap the ball with the play clocks at 23 and we got a 19 point lead. Oh my goodness. I mean, that, that, it, it's what it is. These people were like spiking the ball on New England, uh, not so much New England, probably more Massachusetts, New York, and New Jersey. That was the big three for cases. And look at it now is those three states took it seriously. And I have to credit. Governor Baker here in Massachusetts because he faced a lot of pressure from a lot of stupid people to do things and he held his ground and I think everything has been timed in sort of a proper fashion, the slow rollout. I don't want to say necessarily that we have quote unquote flattened the curve already, but I think we've done a pretty good job of achieving that. Meanwhile, down in Texas where, you know, oh, we, we don't have to take this seriously. Oh, we don't have an income tax. Look, look at how awesome we are. And they're, they're seeing a spike in cases there. And in Florida, where the NBA is going to be resuming. I mean, they, they might want to rethink that. I mean, even like the NHL announced they're going to come back at the end of July. Honestly, I think they should just go to like Edmonton and Halifax. Because they they have their act together in those two places. I think Halifax had like one confirmed case the other day. Like that that's what they're down to there. And Edmonton, I mean, who who's going in and out of Edmonton? Let's let's 
mean, the, nobody is traveling there, even in the summer. And by summer, I mean we're actually in that two and a half week span right now, where it is, in fact, summer in Edmonton, Alberta. But anyway, to bring it back to my original point, you know, we're, we're trying to have a society here, and we need to look out for each other. I won't even go to New Hampshire anymore because New Hampshire, like I said, it's like the Alabama or Florida of the North. I mean, you go up there, people are just walking around unmasked. I, I talked about that with great vehemence about four shows ago, I think it was. And I was, and I'm still angry about it to the point where I think the only time I've set foot in New Hampshire since then was I went to the <laughs> propane place, which is literally on the state line. And there's no closer place to get the propane filled because I don't like to do the swap at the Home Depot because, number one, I like my tank because it's relatively new. And number two, if I swap it out, the the secret is those Home Depot and Lowe's exchange tanks, they only fill them like 80% of the way up. You go to a propane place and you get it filled there, they're going to fill it 100% of the way up. So Pete's recommendations for this week. Number one, stay out of New Hampshire. And number two, be good to one another, which I know sounds Jerry Springer-esque, but that's just the way that it is right now. We are trying to have a society. Now, let me go into a topic that is definitely much more positive, professional wrestling. Oh, wait. Yeah. On last week's show, I had said something The kind of in generalities like we are facing a reckoning, people. But that reckoning it worked in pro wrestling in a way that – I did not expect with all the stuff that went on on Twitter where people tweet stuff out and you can't really keep up with it. Obviously, in the wrestling business, you would like good people to be a part of it. I don't know what it is about it where this sort of thing seems to happen in large numbers. There are good people out there. But you, the other thing is, you have to take this on a case-by-case basis. I saw somebody put together a list of people. I think it was like four screenshots full. And I'm looking at all of them like, first of all, how the hell am I supposed to keep up with all of this? And secondly, you're basically treating everybody on this list as equals. As always, you have to take things on a case-by-case basis. It's like... Oh, somebody awkwardly asked a female wrestler out on a date when he probably should have. All right. Yeah, that, that was that was not a good thing. But, you know, that's not the equal of slipping a digit on somebody and not having, you know, consent for that sort of thing. You have to take it on a case-by-case basis. And then, obviously, Twitter seems to be working to try and clean up. Uh, I'm talking about the users on wrestling twitter which is still a cesspool as i said but uh then again you probably knew that because uh <laughs> it's like the serial sexual assaulter is not equal to the quote-unquote groomer i'm not entirely sure how that works where you're, you're groom I, I i don't know when i see groomer I, I i think like the chicks who worked in the other room when i was at PetSmart, you know shaving and combing the dogs that, that's that's what i think of but okay Jim Crockett Promotions, 1988, in the second quarter of the year. This is the May 7th NWA Pro. I really wish that I had my magazines from 1988. I know I'm complaining again about that, but all the magazines that I found were from 19, like, late 89, or most of them were 90, 91, and after. I even bought, like, a Pro Wrestling Illustrated in 1997. 
I don't know why the hell I did that, but I'm kind of glad that I did because it, it certainly has a different feel looking through it. But 88, looking through the – when I first got magazines, I, I would learn about JCP entirely through magazines. So like Arn Anderson, Telly Blanchard, those were just names like – Oh, well, they're the number one ranked tag team according to this. So when they came to the WWF, I knew who they were, but I had not, I did not have TBS, but I knew who they were because of that. Now, they're members of the Four Horsemen, and the Four Horsemen had recently got an addition in the form of Barry Windham. Very interesting circumstances leading to that. Starting with the fact that he turned on his tag team partner, Lex Luger, who's spot in the horseman was vacant for several months it almost seems like the horsemen were kind of leaving that slot for somebody saving it recruiting it and it all kind of goes into the storyline which i think was done pretty well when some people look at this and say oh windham turned like very very suddenly like they won the tag titles and then three four weeks later he's turning on luger but Seeds are being planted, and there's plenty on this, on this show, because it's all they talk about during the matches. I mean, it's kind of a mistake for me to choose this show, because you get really no sound from any of these matches. And clearly at this point, the NWA had settled on a format where we're not going to have any squash match longer than two minutes. Now, yeah, the WWF did short matches as well, but they would manage to squeeze in an inset promo. Here, it's kind of that same format where you'll get match, interview. I mean, we see J.J. Dillon multiple times on the show, but I'm actually going to allow it because this is one of his shining moments as a manager. And luckily, we do get a very extended Ric Flair promo you know, it's, it's kind of strange. It's like not a whole lot going on for him at this point. He, he's sort of in between. You had the Sting thing, and Sting is wrestling on this show as well. At the Clash, that's six weeks before this. But the Luger thing for the Bash hasn't really heated up yet. So you're kind of in an in-between phase. He's just kind of there as world champion. He's mostly facing Sting on house shows right before this time period. Also on this program, we're going to, you know, number of different staples of Jim Crockett promotions. Dr. Death, Steve Williams, who also has a promo. So I advise you to get out your seatbelts because they are going to need to be buckled for that. Nikita Koloff, luckily he doesn't have to talk. He's nearly in the opening match. We get the varsity club of Kevin. Once again, Kevin Sullivan is sporting another unique look. Yes, it is not the suspenders in t-shirt thing with the Red Sox shirt like when he hosted Worldwide back in 91 but it's certainly interesting and definitely will not go unremarked upon and you know pretty much anybody else you can think of from JCP is probably going to make their way through except of course for Arn and Tully I never seem to pick the ones where they're in the squash match but they are part of the greater horseman interview that of course will take place on the show I don't think they're going to be hawking any vitamins, though. I don't I don't remember exactly what the timing on the Four Horsemen vitamins was. <laughs> Did anybody save a bottle of that? Like, can you buy Four Horsemen vitamins and, like, see, like, what would happen if you ate one of them? Like, you're like, I am born into new worlds. Like, does it become, like, acid or something? I don't know. 
I don't know where I'm going with this, so I should just get right into it. NWA Pro, May 7th, 1988. All right, fans, back to the ring, and we're ready now with action in the ring. Here is one of the top contenders for the world championship, a top contender for any of the titles, always, is this man, Nikita Koloff. You get a good look at the Russian right there. Ooh, yeah. I'm going to have to go ahead and sort of disagree with you there, Bob Cottle who's the host of this program, alongside Jim Ross, a a duo that would eventually find themselves in Smoky Mountain Wrestling in the mid-90s for varying reasons. It's that Nikita, I'm actually surprised that he's here in May of 1988. Like, I know he drops out for a while, but apparently it's the month of March. It's just, the memory I had of him is he disappears for the entire summer because his wife or girlfriend, I cannot remember if he was married at that point, She eventually passed away the following year of Hodgkin's lymphoma. He comes back around September to save Ivan and their short-lived team before he disappears yet again. However, he turns back up, and I remember so little of this. Maybe it's just repressed. Maybe it's the flat-top Nikita that is infamous for being, like, the signal of, like, yeah, you don't need to watch this Nikita Koloff match. By the time 1988 rolls around, you don't need to see anything that he has to do. Now, yes, he might be distracted by stuff that's going on. But let's go back to Bunkhouse Stampede when he's still the television champion. He's defending against Bobby Eaton of the Midnight Express. Yes, you're normally a tag team wrestler, but certainly not going to argue with Bobby Eaton as a singles wrestler. And they put on one of the most boring matches of all time, a time limit draw. Nikita with the flat top, you can definitely mark time by that, just like Sting's hair in 96. So, yeah, I just don't remember anything Nikita did in the middle of the year. He beats Al Perez by disqualification at Clash of the Champions 2. Of course, I don't really remember too much about that clash, other than the horseman beating up Lex Luger and then appearing on the Chicago Blackhawks owner's boat. It was Bill Wirtz's boat, and it was kind of funny to me that – apparently I'm the only person who likes to make a big deal out of that. And Bill Wirtz, one of the notorious cheapskates, but maybe I should save that if I ever do Clash 2. There's just something missing with Nikita at this point, and it happened really fast too because he was still kind of the old Nikita at Starcade 87 when he beats Terry Taylor, unifies the television titles with that of the UWF. And, you know, he throws down the UWF TV title to, you know, once again, stick it to them. That's pretty much when those titles all became dormant. Somewhere between then and Bunkhouse Stampede, everything just sort of fell apart for him. And to my mind, he wasn't at all any good in the ring until the brief 1991 heel run when he comes back and he's from Lithuania and he's going after Luger and then Sting. Which I thought was okay for a while, but it did flame out kind of quick. He's wrenching on the side headlock. And Bacottle and Ross, they're not even talking about the match. Like I said in the intro, everything is about Barry Windham and Lex Luger. So if you, if you end up wrestling on this show, you, you, you're not gonna, you're not gonna get talked about at all. It's just all Windham and Luger. As a corner whip, and he hits a back elbow, and the Russian sickle finishes immediately. I mean, this thing was over with in about under 90 seconds. So it's not like, uh, <laughs> you know, I'm just coming up with stuff to talk about Nikita Koloff at this point. It's like, I need to find that line somewhere between Starcade. Maybe I should look up all of his matches. Maybe it was in the middle of one of those matches. Maybe it was during a back elbow spot. I don't know. 
But honestly, I, I really don't want to sit through late 87, early 88 Nikita matches trying to find that out. It's very understandable because on December 26, Ric Flair told the whole wrestling world we had our sights on Barry Windham to complete the Four Horsemen unit. And I've been speaking with Barry Windham on off and on for the last couple of months. Three points that I've repeatedly brought up to him. Number one is, yes, Dusty Rhodes raised you. He's been like a father to you. But you can spend the rest of your life being an indebtedness to someone else that you never step out and make a name for yourself. Point number two, all this talk the last couple months about about movie contracts, about commercial endorsements. They weren't talking about Barry Wyndham. They were talking about Lex Luger. And then the point that I think really turned his thinking was that I told him, hey, Lex Luger couldn't commit to the four horsemen. He had his priorities mixed up. And I told Barry Wyndham, you wait and see. I don't know when. I don't know where it'll be. But sometime Lex Luger will let you down. He won't be there when you need him the most. And then you'll know that everything that I've been telling you up to now is right. And let's go to that match because I think you'll see just exactly what took place and it speaks for itself. The good thing is we're not just going to get talk about the Wyndham Luger thing during the matches. We're going to get a lot of background and a lot of insight from J.J. Dillon, who's the mastermind of this whole thing. And and the rest of the horsemen will be along a little bit later as well. So he's giving us like the, the who, what, where, why of the entire thing. Probably not the last time that J.J. Dillon would be tampering with somebody who was on another team, given that he was a WCW executive and a WWF executive at various points in the 1990s. It's so unbelievably diabolical where they plant, he planted the seeds because they talk about December 26. And it was probably like on TV. And think of how long that is. That's over four months before this. Planting the seeds to sow dissension between those guys. Like, well, it doesn't work for a while, but they kept trying. And eventually it worked. It's almost like a foreign country interfering in the United States elections. Not that that would ever happen. That is all purely hypothetical. Like if, say, Russia decided to interfere in the U.S. presidential election at the invitation of one of the candidates. Again, not that that would ever happen. But they joined in progress the match that aired two weeks before this with Barry Windham and Lex Luger defending the tag team titles against Arn Anderson and Telly Blanchard, who they had beaten for it just less than a month before that at the Clash of the Champions, the very first one on the 27th. This actually aired three, uh, two, yeah, two weeks before on the Saturday World Championship Wrestling Show and also aired on Pro the previous week. And we start with Luger on the floor and just kind of hear from the commentary that he had been DDT'd out there twice. And he gets sent into the guardrail by Arn Anderson. Now, it's just kind of like a metal, you know, very kind of barren guardrail. But it, it is metal. So if Luger hits his head on it, you know, it, it's going to hurt. Wyndham goes out there to tend to him as the referee sort of, you know, leads him away there. As we get a slingshot clothesline by Tully Blanchard on Lex Luger. That thing where Luger's neck is underneath the ropes and Tully just sort of slingshots back. So Lex is back in the ring and he's in peril. Spine buster by Arn Anderson, which I'll give 7 out of 10 Arns. But we get a big kick out by Luger. So he's got plenty left in the tank is the story that's being told. And Tully is in. He keeps him from getting the tag because Tully and Arn are just masters at cutting off the ring. A snap mare attempt is countered into a backslide by Luger. That ends up getting a two count. And again, again, the ring is just cut off. 
Arn goes over and whacks Wyndham off the apron to draw him into the ring. Now, the great thing about this story is it's explained in such a way where you say, well, why is Wyndham fighting this match? Why is he hitting these guys that he's eventually going to join up with? Well, it all is kind of fed into by the events that happen during it. That's why it's a brilliant little piece of subtle storytelling. Figure four by Tully Blanchard on Luger. It does not last very long for whatever. He like lets go or something as Arn gets in. He continues to work the leg of Lex Luger and a spinning toehold attempt. He's kicked off into the corner. They still manage to keep Lex from making the tag. Now Tully takes his shot at Barry Windham, but he actually doesn't connect. He, he ends up missing, but that again draws Windham into the ring. The referee's got to go over and tend to that. So now Tully and Arn can go to, go to school with Lex Luger, their former Stablemate in the Four Horsemen. A vertical suplex is contempt by Tully. I don't know if he's going to go for the slingshot, but that's blocked and reversed by Luger. Tully and Lex then hit head-to-head in the center of the ring, so both guys are down. Eventually, this allows Luger to make that hot tag, and Wyndham comes in. He's a house of fire. And Tully, some, somehow, some way, it was unclear to me how this ended up happening. On the outside of the ring, he sends Luger into the ring post. Meanwhile, inside the ring, Tully, who apparently is just everywhere here, he's like Scotty Pippen in the Olympics covering Tony Kukoc. I'm sorry, I've been exposed to a lot of Dream Team stuff, and that that was the first analogy I could think of. Tully manages then to come in low blow Wyndham from behind. So again, you say, well, if they know that they're going to get Barry Wyndham, why is he doing that to him? It's a, they don't know yet. That's that's kind of the magic of this whole thing. Meanwhile, Lex, he's bleeding on the outside of the ring. A little bit better blade job, I think, than his Great American Bash one. But it's not, you know, it's not like Great Muda level or anything. He can't reach the apron. He's struggling to get up there. And in the match, Wyndham is fighting off and he doesn't see anybody in his corner. And now Dylan, as part of the brilliant storytelling here, goes... It yells at Wyndham, he won't be there. Planting that, you know, reinforcing that seed. It's like he's adding fertilizer to the seeds that he's already planted. I think the big question that people have about all of this is, isn't Wyndham a tag team champion? Isn't that enough for him? Well, sometimes you have what you have and you're like, well, can I have a little bit more by doing something else? The grass is greener on the other side, so to speak. Wyndham is in there. He's fighting to defend the tag team titles and he looks over and he doesn't see anybody in his corner. He doesn't see Lex Luger there because, and he doesn't understand that Luger has been attacked on the outside of the ring. This is all stuff that he wouldn't have seen. But you got JJ needling him, pushing those buttons, saying he's not going to be there. And that's all based on Luger being kicked out of the horseman for, quote-unquote, not being committed to, I guess, the team. Because he wouldn't let JJ win one of the bunkhouse stampedes leading up you know, in late December, early January of 1988. That That's how... That kind of happens. must have been late December because if they're talking about December 26. The interesting thing, though, is Luger kind of took a beating. And you almost think from a kayfabe perspective that 
maybe Wyndham should think about it and like, well, maybe I should suck it up here. And, you know, because I know Luger got hit hard in the ring. But again, he doesn't know what went on outside. So it can be explained in that way. And Luger is struggling to get back to the apron, but Wyndham can't necessarily see that. All he hears is J.J. trash-talking him and telling him, basically feeding any anger and resentment he might have for Lex Luger. Luger finally climbs back onto the apron, and now Wyndham, he's just really pissed off. So I wouldn't say it's like the Mega Powers thing, but he grabs Luger's hand and tags it rather angrily and then body slams him back into the ring. the greatest audio quality in the world but there's a lot of noise in that arena in jacksonville on that night after he slammed him he picked him up and hit him with a big lariat and (laughs) what's kind of funny is there there's no better tag team in this situation than arn anderson and tully blanchard now you could say well there's no better tag team period than those guys and i'd be willing to hear you out on that even though i'm not sure that they were a team for quite long enough you know a little over two years is my estimation but there's no team better at when the other side has one partner turn on the other uh, i just love the way arn and tully always react to that because don't forget you got strike force breaking up at wrestlemania 5 which is so weird it's less than a year from this point and the fact that the Braidbusters just relish the fact that they can kick the bejesus out of tito santana for a good five or six minutes anderson just comes into the ring and covers and that's it that's how they win it's all it's all wyndham's moves it's not like he drops an elbow or hits a spine bust or anything it's like all right fine i'll take it you take the win anyway you get it to drive things home, J.J. Dillon, he walks out of the arena with Barry Windham. So that that happened fast. I mean, Windham, I guess he's a man who just kind of makes up his mind and then just sort of goes with it. But Dillon actually earns earns my respect for this because he comes off looking so good in this. Because I, I think his, his character work, and probably the finest character work he ever did, from, from a kayfabe perspective, it, it's certainly his finest managerial moment going all the way back. I mean, I don't know if I can really comment on anything he might have done in Florida or any other territories, but in Crockett, making this happen, you take it from a kayfabe perspective and what Barry Windham was, because Barry Windham, don't forget, is also one of the best Ric Flair challengers. So now, not only have you benefited the tag team in the Horseman, Arnatelli, but you've also taken away Ric Flair's, one of his biggest rivals, they had the great match in early 1987. So now, now Flair, he, he's on Flair's team. He's not going to have to defend the world title against him. So it's a nice little two-for-one sort of deal. So Dylan, after they play this clip, I think 
you know, while I don't think he's one of the greatest managers of all time, I think he's entitled to a victory lap here. Tony, wrestling history has just been made, and I'm sure as the annals of professional sport look back, this is going to be the most outstanding moment of the decade, not only in professional wrestling, but of all professional athletics. We already know that Tully Blanchard and Arn Anderson are the greatest tag team alive, possibly the greatest tag team of all time. Ric Flair, a great heavyweight champion, maybe the greatest of all time, but as champion, most say the greatest wrestler in the world. But Ric Flair himself has said, in his opinion, the greatest wrestler in the world was Barry Windham. So which is it? The most important thing to me is they're both part of the same unit. And now the four horsemen have reached a new level that they have never, ever experienced before. There is only one shadow looming above all of this, and that is the awesome shadow of this Midnight Rider. And I understand we have a commercial break, and when we come back, that is a point that I wish to address. I love JJ. He's so cocky. He thinks he's the director now. We could just be able to throw to commercial, run that tape, do this, do that. But again, you know, he's, he's going to earn the right to be arrogant here. It, this point here, the horseman getting Barry Windham to be part of their group, it's like when the Yankees made the trade for Roger Clemens and basically gave up nothing, and aging David Wells and Homer Bush, or when the Miami Heat were able to get LeBron into the fold. Do you know that that was actually a trade? That was not a free agent signing. That was a sign and trade. So technically, the Cavaliers traded him to the Miami Heat. I, I only learned that the other day. I always thought that that was a straight-up free agent signing. So it, it's like, you know, the top team in whatever league now all of a sudden gets one of the best players and a guy who is in the prime of his career. A lot of heel turns sort of happen in a vacuum, but not this because there was a lot of dimensions to what Barry Windham was. He was the top, one of the top faces in Jim Crockett promotions for over a year, basically from the moment he came back in early 1987. He's a Dusty Rhodes protege. So not only does he turn on Lex Luger, but because he's a Dusty Rhodes protege, that's not going to sit well with big dust from that perspective, even though Dusty Rhodes is technically not there. There's a guy, again, there's a guy named the Midnight Rider who, you know, has a lot of the same mannerisms, but I can either confirm nor deny anything like that. Well, that's true, but Barry Windham, most importantly, finally recognized his destiny, and when the merry-go-round came around and the brass ring was there, he reached out and grabbed it. But I did expect that people like the Midnight Rider would have something to say. But let me remind you of something. The Midnight Rider must be dealt with, and there's a lot of people that agree with me. And Barry Windham, for one, looked me right in the eye and said, J.J., you know who the Midnight Rider is. I know who the Midnight Rider is. And more importantly, I know him maybe better than anyone else in the world, much like a son knows the inner darkest secrets of his own father. And Barry Windham told me if there's anybody in professional wrestling that could remove the mask of the Midnight Rider, I really think it could be me. But you see, Barry Windham now is in a circle of champions, and there's only one of us that does not have a championship belt at this moment, though Barry Windham does have his sights on the U.S. title. But Barry Windham has a rather unique trophy of his own. And I would like to go to this videotape now of a scene that took place in Jacksonville following that momentous occasion when Tully Blanchard and Arn Anderson recaptured the World Tag Team titles, and once again, that Midnight Rider stuck his nose in where it didn't belong. Reach for that brass ring, you say? Gee, hmm, where have I heard that one before? You know, they're not as ambitious, quite frankly, um, and they're not trepidatious at all. I just don't think they necessarily want to reach for that brass ring. 
Do you realize that interview now was five and a half years ago and almost none of the issues that Austin brought up on that have actually been addressed in WWE, at least to my satisfaction. So anyway, back back to JCP88, you know, a promotion without any troubles. Oh, I make myself laugh. So they go back. The faces are in the ring. Dr. Death, Sting, Ronnie Garvin, Nikita Koloff. They're all checking on Lex Luger. The fact that Koloff is there, I'm scratching my head. I'm like, wait a minute. I thought that years later you were bitter about Lex Luger stealing the U.S. title from you. 1991 that was the whole reason for your comeback but here in 1988 when it's only less than a year after you're not bitter about it i don't know i guess maybe nikita went through a lot in the meantime yeah and the midnight rider he's there as well who has takes it upon himself even though he's got guys there to help him out in this he decides to go to the back and he's walking around and he goes into the heel locker room now Dusty had been suspended. I have to remind you of this. Is the the day before the Clash of Champions, he assaulted Tully Blanchard with a baseball bat, standing up for Magnum TA, who had basically been punked by Tully. So we're we're trying to dial up the heat there. But he also hit I think it was David Crockett as well. Might have been Jim Crockett. I I, I really don't remember, but either way, Dusty gets suspended. Comes back under a mask as the Midnight Rider because that's what he did in Florida years before. He loved that crap to do that. The have the guy come back in the mask. Brian Pillman as the Yellow Dog in 1991 WCW. Certainly a low moment for that sort of storyline, especially since they had Eligante right there to do the story with. Why didn't they just do that? That would have been so much funnier. It would have been at least a good comedy angle. But no, no. We had to have Brian Pillman pretending to be, you know, a freaking conquistador or whatever the hell it was. So the Midnight Rider makes the stupidest decision since... It's funny that I brought up Eligante because it, it was the stupidest decision since Argentina invaded the Falklands. Which I was reminded of the other day watching Game 7 of the 82 Eastern Conference Finals. Like, tense game between the Sixers and the Celtics during one of the timeouts. Dick Stockton is like, we'll take you to CBS News for an update on the events in the Falkland Islands War. I'm like, oh yeah, that was going on too. And now the Midnight Rider, much like Argentina and the Falklands, decides to invade the heel locker room by himself. And let's just say, it doesn't go well. Yeah, this plays better on video, but you can kind of get the gist of it from audio. So what happened was Midnight Rider goes in to confront Barry Windham and tell him, says, don't turn your back on me. And then he actually throws the first punch, which makes it even stupider. So he's immediately surrounded by all the heels and their flares there, the Midnight Express. And they, they just wail on him. And then they take his mask as well. But we don't actually get to see who the Midnight Rider is. 
<laughs> whether it's Dusty Rhodes. Even though it sounds exactly like him, I guess we will never know. As the baby faces who were in the ring with him moments earlier, and they, they've now come in to cover him up and get him out of there. And that's where you can hear J.J. Dillon in his role as director extraordinaire yelling at the camera guy to follow along. I mean, he, he is really like the producer-director of this show. It's pretty crazy. What a cool angle, though, with... With a lot of subtlety that wrestling never really does all that well. Usually in wrestling with a storyline, you know, they hit you over the head with it. And, and that's fine. A lot of that storytelling works. But when they pull off something subtle like this, like we're planting seeds for this guy to join our group for four months and then he eventually does, it's, it's so, it's so imaginative. And meanwhile, Dusty has to involve himself in the aftermath here because those are the rules of 1988 Jim Crockett promotions. We can't do anything without him, whether it's Kevin Sullivan's group, Gary Hart's group. doesn't matter. Dusty Rhodes is going to be involved somehow. Meanwhile, Lex Luger is the guy who got turned on, beaten down in in the match and beaten down by Wyndham. So, like, Luger doesn't even get to seek immediate revenge for this thing. Again, that's 1988 Jim Crockett Promotions and Dusty's booking at that time in a nutshell. There are elements of it that are very good, but honestly, this wasn't all it could be. 101 to 100. What a basketball game we've had. Oscar Robertson throws to Kareem. Seven seconds. Finkle. The Kareem with a big pressure shot. Nothing but net again. I can't believe the way these players are performing out here, Pat. Just absolutely fantastic. The Celtics will still have the last shot of the basketball game. I've been kind of struggling lately for, like, bumpers to play between segments. And I realized, oh, yeah, I'm in episode 174. And 100 episodes ago, actually starting with episode 80, I played, like, a sports moment from the year representing the last two numbers of the episode. So from 1974 Kareem Abdul-Jabbar's hook shot to beat the Celtics in game 6 in overtime and they were down one and Kareem hits a running hook with 3 seconds left Celtics of course uh, would go on and win the series in 7 winning by 15 a sad end for Oscar Robertson's career in Milwaukee and what kind of a team gets blown out in game 7 of a championship series on home court home ice <clears throat> I really don't I really don't wish to address that question, but I did not think that going in to this whole era of COVID that I would develop this great appreciation for Kareem Abdul Jabbar, mainly from watching the eighties Lakers games and just, just seeing him in action, but also for, for how kind of a well rounded dude he is. Yeah, he's surly and angry, but like I said several weeks ago, can can you really blame him for being that way? He's a seven foot three black man in the United States. And a lot of people were looking at him. And he didn't want to be looked at. He wanted to do his own thing. The guy writes Sherlock Holmes mysteries. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. What a guy. And now, here we got Al Perez. <laughs> Why the hell am I trying to avoid talking about an Al Perez match? Well, he is the dad of Seth Rollins. He He's not really, but he looks exactly like Seth Rollins. If he was Seth Rollins' dad, he would be a grandpa soon. God. I mean, ugh. At the very least, at least we don't have to see Seth Rollins on screen with with Becky Lynch. It's, Rollins managed to ruin that as well. I mean, there's there's no limits to like he he's he and Bray Wyatt and Dolph Ziggler are, are just absolutely the worst. Al Perez, also a former world champion, I put that in the highest quotation marks. We're talking about world class championship wrestling, late 1987 until March of 1988. 
he actually won the title by forfeit and lost it to Kerry Von Erich. He was also the Texas champion, and he won that, guess what, by forfeit from the Dingo Warrior, who go on to become the Ultimate Warrior, of course, and then would lose it to one of the Von Erichs. I think it was Kevin in that case. He's aligned with Larry Zabisco here. I mean, you want... Al Perez just never really did anything memorable in any of these big promotions. He here he's facing David Isley, by the way, who is you know rolled up immediately in, but he's in the ropes, so there's there's no count to it. The unit U.S. title tournament just coming up because Dusty had been stripped of that title as part of his suspension, and Al Perez he's going to be in that. Now this is what's interesting about this is. There's a whole Wikipedia page of WCW and NWA. So going back, you know, to the forerunner Jim Crockett promotions, they, they have all the title tournaments on there. Yes, including all the stupid Russo era ones. And I don't know how they figure out brackets for that sort of thing. It would give me such a headache. But weirdly, the 1988 US title tournament is not on there, which is, it's nice and clean. It's a one night tournament that took place on May the 13th in Houston, so not long after this. Paul Bosch had kind of come back online with the NWA in this case because he did not care for his arrangement with the WWF the year before, announced his retirement, and then came out of retirement but said that he wasn't coming out of retirement. Instead, they gave him, like, not the promoter position but something like, oh, he's the chairman of the NWA board or some sort of nonsense like that as Perez is working the arm as Jim Ross calls Wyndham's turn unforeseen. Apparently, he's not interested in seeing the deeper meaning of it, but it was unforeseen to a lot of people. He's half of the tag champions. I I think that's why it was more unforeseen. It doesn't work quite as well if Harn and Tully are still the champions and those guys are still chasing. Perez gets Isley up for what looks like in the razor's edge position, but then kind of spins him around and slams him that way. It was kind of a cool move. Irish whip and a flying forearm, which I think is mandatory for all wrestlers of Latino descent with him, Manny Fernandez, Tito Santana, spinning toehold finishes. Al should not go unmentioned. Al. I want to use my Peg Bundy voice. 8990 WWF, one of the least memorable guys ever in golden era WWF. He's mainly on house shows and primetime wrestling, which for anybody who, you know, watched the more modern product, it's kind of like the guy who only appears on main event or on, I don't even know if they even have superstars anymore, but like main event is like he was the EC3 of his time. Although a lot of people like EC3. I don't think anybody really cared that much about Al Perez. He's a classic big fish in a little pond, but a very small fish in a big pond guy or to, to, Speak more my language, baseball, baseball, baseball. He's like a 4A baseball player where he's too good to be in the minor leagues, but somehow he's also not good enough to be in the major leagues. But you know what? He's still more enjoyable than his son, Seth Rollins. And the grand prize winner of the Dream Match sweepstakes is David Bates of Sanford, North Carolina. Congratulations to the Dream Match winner. Because of the magic of the internet, you could look up David Bates from Sanford, North Carolina. That's a real guy. I think it said he was 60 years old now. And there was a phone number listed. I was kind of tempted to call him or text him. I really don't want to do that, though. As somebody with a Nevada area code, 
I, I get a lot of spam calls and I don't really care for it. Like if I had to look up my list of blocked phone numbers, like there's a trillion 702 numbers that I have blocked, not from people calling the wrong number, but from like just, I think for whatever reason, Nevada gets targeted mainly because I think a lot of stupid people live in Nevada. Believe me, I, I, I know this because I experienced it and I was around those people for eight, nine months. And I don't think it's gotten a lot better in the last 17 years. I worked at a bookstore in the greater Las Vegas area. You know, a lot of it was gambling books. We, we had a very large gambling section. So anyway, <laughs> Bob Cottle is there with Ric Flair, who he he's now on easy street because he he's wrestled Dusty Rhodes a million times. I mean, that that's old hat. I mean, we're, we're not we're done with Flair and Dusty. But now they've taken Barry Windham completely off the table as a challenger. So this dude is riding high. It's like, like I said. The Yankees no longer have to face Roger Clemens of the Blue Jays in the American League East once they trade for him in 1999. That's exactly what this is. Over the years, a lot of people have thought I'm blowing smoke, but on five different occasions, I've blown the smoke and I've walked away woo, with the world's heavyweight wrestling championship. The four horsemen, the most elite force in this sport now have made the foursome complete. I went to James Dillon. I went to Tony Long six months ago, and I said the best pure athlete and wrestler in our sport today is Barry Windham. And we need Barry Windham to make this put us on a level never known to professional sports. So what happens? JJ gets the needle in. And don't think Barry Windham didn't see the limousines, didn't see the clothes, the jet airplanes, the prestige, the notoriety, and the big bucks that follow the four horsemen everywhere they go. And then J.J. put the needle in one more time. He said, Wyndham, when you need Luger the most, he won't be there. Now, let me tell you something. Wyndham has made what we know as a career decision. He brought the best raw talent and pure skills in our sport to the dirtiest players in the game. So we're going to take this six foot six, 270 pound Adonis and make him one of the dirtiest players alive. And you know what else? For all you people out there that don't realize what else has happened, look at it like this. We've combined two female empires. That of the four horsemen and that of Barry Windham. All right, I'll grant you another great Ric Flair promo, but I was really put off, and I have to register a complaint about this. The pocket square that he had in his jacket, I was not feeling it. It was very, very distracting. Pocket squares should not be that distracting. He, he I don't know what the hell he was doing with that. I mean, you can't be styling and profiling with a pocket square like that. Now, maybe, maybe I don't know enough about pocket squares. Maybe I'm just entirely ignorant on the subject. I don't know. I, I I was just, my eye was drawn a little bit too much to it, and all I could think was that it looked a little bit weird. Maybe it's just me, 
you know, kind of trying to, you know, put myself in a shell against the definite vibe of the Roger Clemens, LeBron Jamesness, or Kevin Durant to the Golden State Warriors signing with a team that went 73 and 9. Like, oh yeah, I'll, I'll sign up with them. And by the way, the reason why I do baseball and basketball, especially basketball, is this doesn't work in the NFL or the NHL where one player, unless it's a quarterback in the, in the NFL, doesn't really make that much of a difference that one player in basketball could, especially. Because there's a hard salary cap. If the horseman had to operate under a salary cap, that, that's kind of an interesting thing to think about. They dump Ole because he's getting old, and they probably didn't want to deal with his shit anymore. So they dump him and pick up Lex Luger, who's young up and coming, and then they dump him because they feel like, well, he might cost us too money down the ro- too much money down the road, and we don't we don't want him part of this group long term. So we're going to move on from him. And we're just going to kind of keep it empty for a while. And we're going to hold out hope that we can eventually get Barry Windham, which they do. And that's the original three phases of the Horseman. Now, things things turn a little bit in 93 when, you know, you, you can't get Telly Blanchard in there because reasons. So we pick up Paul Roma. It's like, yeah, we'll just promote the guy from Double A ball or something like that. Anyway, we got Sting up next against Trent Knight. And even though Sting had the time limit draw with Ric Flair at the Clash of Champions six weeks before this. And it's followed up with kind of losses on house shows. I'm sure Flair did his share of cheating. So it's not like they were doing draws around the loop. And it's perfectly fine the way that they did it because it's not on TV. The match on TV helped make Sting what he wants. It's all, But having that be a 45-minute time limit draw for Sting in, like, the first big match that you have on TV, especially as a single, it's kind of like a couple that almost f***ed on the first date but then decided to hold off for marriage. Just kind of looking at what Sting was up to after a certain point, when when he's done with the little sort of mini flare program on the house shows. It's a lot of tag matches, so they're taking their time building him up. At Clash 2 and at the Great American Bash in the summer... He's on opposite sides with Tully Blanchard and Arn Anderson. Now, what benefit is that going to have? You know, he doesn't win the matches. One of them's a double DQ. The other's a draw. So he doesn't lose them, but he has the benefit of being in there with Tully Blanchard and Arn Anderson. He's certainly going to pick something up because he's still learning at this point. He won the Crockett Cup with Lex Luger, which was a change last second because that was the other thing is Wyndham and Luger are supposed to be in the Crockett Cup, and Wyndham... Joins the Horseman, so now Luger is put with Sting, and now with Sting in that position, they propel themselves to a Crockett Cup victory. So another you know feather in the cap of, I guess both of those guys, but I I think you can chalk it more up to Sting just because you know he joins the team late, and they end up winning that tournament. But they did good by taking their time with Sting. It, it, I think it could have been disastrous if they had tried to push him too much too soon as a single in 1988. They're giving him room to learn. Because his matches at this point, you don't need to have him do a whole hell of a lot. Here, it's just Stinger Splash, Scorpion Deathlock puts away Trent Knight in a hurry. I mean, that's all we need to see here. I mean, it's the Magnum TA playbook. Now, I do wish that some of these matches would last a little bit longer, a little bit more than two minutes. But with Sting, I don't think you necessarily need to do that. But now we got to go back to J.J. Dillon because, you know, a victory lap, you have to go basically around four corners, you know, if you're running around a square field or whatever. And, you know, we're going to need to see J.J. a few more times. 
times. So he's with Barry Windham. And what's funny is that once he gets done with his little dose of sarcasm, which is actually pretty funny, he's, he's very exciting, excited about joining the Four Horsemen for the same reason that I theorized that Sid Vicious was excited in 1990 later on. It's all about that clothing allowance. You know, first of all, I would like to start out by congratulating my new friends, Arn Anderson and Tully Blanchard, on their victorious debut for the World Tag Team Championship. It was a true stroke of genius the way Arn Anderson dove in there and held Lex Luger's shoulders to the mat while he was helpless. He could not kick out of it. Can you imagine what was going on in Lex Luger's mind when he was laying there on the mat, unable to move? This is it right here. Can you imagine what was going on in his mind? Dusty Rhodes, please listen to me. Are you above the law? Everyone thinks that what I have done here is all so awful. Well, let me tell everyone out there something. How is he above the law? He may be the last surviving outlaw, but he is not above the law. To continue on, let me say this. Now, I have walked in the shadow of Dusty Rhodes for far too long. Far too long. It'll never happen again. Now Lex Luger comes along and he thinks that he is half the wrestler that I am? Not at all. Lex Luger is not anywhere near, not a fraction of the wrestler that I am. I am the best wrestler in professional wrestling today, and I will continue to do so. I have many things in mind, and with the help of this man right here and the rest of the horsemen, I will do what I want to do. All at an end. This is it. The horsemen, thank you. Wyndham had the Midnight Riders mask and kind of held it up for the camera at one point. Just a reminder that while he had been wrestling for nearly a decade at this point, he had not been a heel much. I don't know if he was at the very beginning of his career, like before 1983, but I think most of his time there was as a baby. Nothing substantial. So this is something entirely new and different for him. And I think he took to it pretty well. Of course, when you're surrounded by the four horsemen and you're on a roll in the ring the way... Barry Windham was. It, 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 it does make it kind of easy. We get to hear from Lex Luger a little bit, which I'll consider part of J.J. Dillon's, <laughs> you know, making, making the defeated guy have to, you know, talk about the whole thing. But why don't we just go to the next match, which is the Varsity Club, Kevin Sullivan and Rick Steiner against Curtis Thompson and Joe Cruz. And what's weird is I talked about this in the intro how Kevin Sullivan is wearing something rather unusual. You think of him as wearing the trunks and no knee pads, but here he's wearing long tights, and they appear to be purple. Now, the color can be hard to pick up on this sort of thing, but Kevin Sullivan wearing long tights, I never thought I would see the day. I guess uh, maybe maybe cut his legs shaven. I, I, I don't know. I, it's really, I, I have no explanation for why that is. I saw a picture of Curtis Thompson. I don't know where the hell it was. It was Facebook or something. He likes riding his motorcycle in retirement. So good for him. I really don't have too much to add to that. I mean, that's, that's all perfectly fine. I recommend that he wear a helmet. But of course, you know that New Hampshire doesn't have a helmet law. I don't know how many states don't have a helmet law, but I mean, yeah, break with that. It's like, like Ben Roethlisberger not wearing his helmet all those all those years ago. One of the stupidest things ever. As Steiner starts out, but he's he's doing a bit where he's a little bit silly and just kind of slapping Curtis Thompson around, and then Sullivan gets in there and he hits a running drop kick, and I'm absolutely astonished by that because you don't really think of him as like super athlete, but he's not as old as he would feel 
You know, in, in 1996, he felt old. In 1998, not so much. Uh, suplex as well. Then Rick Steiner gets in there and a pair of suplexes, the belly-to-back and then a belly-to-belly. So Rick Steiner, he's not being bullied by Kevin Sullivan at this point. I don't know if they had time for it here to do any of that shtick. It's like Rick's just acting a little silly with the thing at the beginning. But they're almost like a normal team. Like we're not getting any of the satanic games master crap, although Sullivan is called that. And yes, the belly-to-belly is how he picked up the victory. But now we got to hear from Lex Luger, who is infringing on Rod, Rod Trungard's gimmick of wearing sunglasses indoors. And it's a very difficult thing to watch. Me and Barry said we were going to be the fighting champions of the world. And here we are three weeks later doing just what we said we are going to do. That is fighting the uh, former champions right here on national TV. Now at the time, when I made the tag... I'm telling you, I admit they had me in a very bad way. I kept on fighting. They threw everything they had at me. I felt like I could hit the Barry. He was the fresh man. And we had a chance to win this match and retain our titles. On the tag, as we all saw, I, from seeing it back now, I got a knee in the back. I took a hard bump to the floor. Tully Blanchard ended up rolling out, gave me a hard boot to the gut. And he busted me open on the post. And that's when things got very fuzzy for me personally because uh, I went unconscious there for a while. And uh, the next thing I saw was that I could see the guardrail. I knew Barry. I knew the match was still going. I could hear the crowd. I was very woozy. I made my way over the guardrail, hoping that I could use the guardrail to be able to get back to get back to our corner and help out some way if I could. Now, at this point here, I made my way along the guardrail. I've been lacerated pretty badly, and uh, the ball was down my eyes. I had trouble seeing, but I saw. I, I knew I had to get back up to my corner. And uh, right here, as you see, I'm trying to crawl back up. At this point here, I didn't know this was Barry Windham, Tony. I never saw him here. I knew somebody picked me up here and threw me in the ring. I was half out, I was half out of it at this point. But as I rolled over, I didn't know what was going on. I thought the match was over because I saw Barry Windham's boots, his wrestling boots. I thought the match was over here. I didn't know what was going on. I tried to pull myself up to stand up with Barry. And as you can see right here, this is where I put my lights out. I think this is a pretty creative way to have Luger's sort of rebuttal. You have him watch back the match in question because he was woozy, he was out of it, and he really doesn't remember. So as he's seeing, he's kind of calmly narrating it, and you can hear the disappointment in his voice. Now, Luger, I don't think you could send him out. You could have had him maybe do an angry promo, but that wouldn't make sense because... You're now going to program the Midnight Rider or Dusty Rhodes with Barry Windham and not Lex Luger. So to have him be all angry here and then not be able to have a match with Windham on pay-per-view until February of 1989 would seem a little bit strange, don't you think? Or You can't really have him out there cutting something eloquent, you know, like Dusty's. I offered up my innocence and she repaid me in scorn. Which, by the way, I learned this week is a Bob Dylan lyric. It absolutely blew my mind that I did not know that. And I was very disappointed in myself. I was, I, I know exactly where I was when I heard, I was Shelter from the Storm by Bob Dylan. I'm pulling away from the brewery after picking up my weekly beer supply. And I hear the line in the song. And I'm like, so that's where Dusty got that from. I thought that that was just something that he made up. But no, it was a song lyric. But you're not going to get that kind of stuff from Lex Luger. So having him kind of relive this low experience is rather interesting. 
He does take off the sunglasses, though, towards the end. You know, it's been a, an emotional roller coaster for me. It's been almost two weeks since this thing happened, Tony. But I'll say one thing. I've come to grips with it. You watch the tape. There's no refuting it. Barry Windham is the four horsemen. But Barry Windham, you look into my eyes. You think you're amongst friends. But you have just chosen the loneliest path you have ever set on on in your life. Because Lex Luger, if it's the last thing I do on this planet Earth, I'll make sure it's the loneliest road you have ever traveled. I'm not sure how ready I am for Lex Luger to sound as philosophical as he did there. It was almost, you know, like a, like a Bob Dylan song there. So maybe maybe I was wrong saying he couldn't pull something like that off. I, I can't believe that that was a Bob Dylan lyric, and I didn't recognize that for 30 freaking years. I'm very, very bothered by that. Anyway, another great philosopher in professional wrestling history. Dr. Death Steve Williams is up next, and his opponent... <laughs> what a what a weird jobber name this is. Max MacGyver. Tonight on MacGyver. 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 Now the difference between MacGyver and Dr. Death Steve Williams is MacGyver would come up with all these various schemes, you know, building a bomb out of a paper clip and a rubber band, you know, some sort of nonsense like that. It would make things happen that way. Whereas Dr. Death would just get arrested for drug possession at the airport, which happened multiple times including in 1988 before this. So it's not long in the rearview mirror. And uh, <laughs> it's pretty crazy the amount of stuff that he was. <laughs> this was actually the biggest of all of his drug arrests. It was at the airport in Detroit, and Customs discovered 3 grams of cocaine, 22 grams of marijuana, 2 grams of psilocybin. I don't even know how to pronounce that. 241 steroid pills, 28 milliliters of injectable steroids, and other assorted pills in his luggage. Williams was accused of trying to export these drugs with the intent to sell them. But Williams claimed that those drugs were for all for his own personal use. He received a fine, one year's probation and community service. Now I ask you, okay, even if that was his first offense, Dr. Death Steve Williams should get down on his hands and knees. I mean... And just thank God for getting that light of sentence. Now, do you think it would have turned out as easily for him if he was African-American and got busted with those kind of drugs? You're going to tell me that he would have been treated exactly the same in the judicial system getting off that light? I mean, there are dudes who go to jail for 30 years for, for dealing marijuana back in the day or for smuggling it. And this guy gets caught with all that stuff? I mean, the steroid stuff, it was before Ben Johnson, and I think people saw steroids as sort of a East German, you know, communist sort of thing. But still, just incredible how, you know, how how light of a sentence that that was, given how much freaking drugs there was. It was different attitudes about marijuana back in those days, too, I'll tell you. This MacGyver has absolutely no tricks up his sleeve. He, He does a corner whip, but... Dr. Death comes with a clothesline out of the corner, follows it up with a running drop kick, belly to belly, and he pulls the man up at one. I don't know if he went for a pin and then realized, oh shoot, I have a few more spots to do in this one. <laughs> this would be too fast even for a JCP squash match in 1988. A shoulder block tackle, and then the Oklahoma Stampede finishes. Dr. Death picks up the three count. 
This is not the match where he yells into the camera. You see that, Vince? See, apparently he did that at one point, and that, that did not go over very well with Dusty Rhodes. Now, buckle up, everybody. Grab those seatbelts that I alluded to a lot earlier, because we got a Dr. Death promo. Now, look. Okay. I have not done all the drugs that was in Dr. Death's toolbox, I guess you could say. I mean, maybe maybe one of them. But having taken one of them recently and been on a Zoom call with my friends, oh, let's say last Friday, where I was having these weird memory lapses <laughs> where, like, I started out in a story and then had to save myself by doing the Frankest stance of lost my train of thought bit. You couldn't smooth a silk sheet if you had a hot date with a babe. I lost my train of thought. <laughs> Look, he only has to hit the key points here. Maybe mention Flair. Definitely mention Dusty Rhodes. Bonus points if you do it more than once. Make sure you work in Luger and Wyndham at some point. Rick Flair! Ah! Let me get your attention! Diamonds are forever, huh? Well, I'm a diamond chipper! And I'm gonna chip the diamonds down! And make a little diamond dust! The four horsemen! Fourth man jumped over the fence. Barry Windham. Now each day when you walk down the road in any of these coliseums, you have to watch your back. You've got to feel the people on your back. Let me say something. The most elite force in professional wrestling, as Ric Flair says. Well, pal, there's a lot of men on the other side that have grouped together, have got together. The Midnight Rider, Lex Luger, Sting, and, of course, the Road Warriors. And one other stat I know, Dusty Rhodes. You four horsemen, all you are scum. You're driving limousines, fancy cars, pretty women. Well, that's not what this sport's all about. Not pretty women, not fancy cars. It's a rough, tough sport. Ric Flair, the four horsemen, look out for your back because there's a lot of men looking so great how he gets cut off by the bumper music at the end just, just as he's really getting going with it but he hit all of his marks mentioned dusty all the things that i talked about so but i have to chalk that up to of course he's not gonna have the same memory lapse he's a much more experienced drug user than most people here they are the only really fantastic thing in professional wrestling beautiful bobby and sweet stand the midnight express With the Midnight Express on this show, I suppose I could talk about the accusations against Jim Cornette and his wife from last week, but honestly, I just can't keep up with everything anymore. So I'm going to put that aside and, and just say this, that there's a saying, is always the person you least suspect. Sometimes it might have to do with sexual proclivities. Like when Marv Albert got indicted for sodomy or whatever the hell that was, when he bit that woman back in 97... Like, yeah, we probably didn't see that coming for whatever reason. But Jim Cornette, you know, just kind of seeing him through the years, you know, you get the sense that he might be into some freaky stuff. I mean, let's look at it. He's the manager of the Midnight Express here. Now, Bobby Eaton, and by the way, if Bobby Eaton got swept up in any of this, if, like, accusations are made against him, I'm basically going to lose all faith in humanity based on what I know about him at this point. 
<laughs> but, but, oh my God. And, and not Stan Lane. No, no, no. I'm hoping I don't hear any disparaging Stan Lane stories come out in all of this because I, I kind of like discussing this topic. I just thought of a weird game using United States zip codes. You know, you get a five digit number there and it goes like the lower numbers are in the east and the higher numbers in the west. Of course, Beverly Hills, 90210. Everybody knows that. But Stan Lane. It's like, is your zip code higher than the number of women that Stan Lane swept, slept with? I'm pretty sure you'd have to live west of the Rockies to, to actually exceed his number. I don't know what Denver is. I think it probably starts with a seven. So the Midnight Express are actually the United States Tag Team Champions at this point. And they're in a feud with the Fantastics, as Jim Cornette subtly alluded to. And... I'm, they're going to be all over my place to be nation greatest WCW match ever because, well, the Midnight Express, I don't know if they're my favorite tag team, but 88 Midnight Express might be my favorite tag team within a specific year. I'm just thinking like off the top of my head here and not really off the top of my head because I did write it down. <laughs> I'm kind of reading, but it was off the top of my head when I wrote it down on the paper. 1988 versus the Fantastics. Clash of Champions. That match is great. It's almost like an ECW match that traveled back in time. You get use of tables and all this other stuff. There's a match on Worldwide where I think it's the Midnights and the Fantastics for the, for the entire match. Not to mention the Midnights and the Rock and Roll Express earlier in the 80s and even if you can go into 1990. And then Starcade 88 against the original Midnight Express. I love that match with the stuff that goes on early with Cornette getting in the little cheap shots. And I also don't want to forget Clash of Champions 4, the Midnights against Ric Flair and Barry Windham. An interesting match because back then you didn't just have two singles guys against one of the top tag teams. Like it's kind of regular these days or in more modern times. As this match begins, Eaton assumes control almost right away. I don't know which guy is which of the two jobbers. It's David Diamond and Tony Bowen. There's really no way for me to know. They, they show no respect for the enhancements in 88 Crockett. It's like no, none of these guys get a formal introduction. He lets Eaton throws one guy over to let the other guy tag in. Apparently they want to make it a short night as Stan Lane gets in his clothesline and a body slam and they go right in to the rocket launcher. And this thing is over quick to the point where Jim Cornette didn't really get in any funny lines on commentary. I hate having to do manual labor. I thought that was a president of Mexico. Well, I'm not entirely sure what he meant by that, but it's probably something that might get you canceled in the year 2020, you know, if anybody really cares about wrestling anymore. So we go to the four horsemen for the final word, uh, the, the final corner turn, I guess, of J.J. Dillon's victory lap. But as always, you, well, you got five guys there now. So, you know, there's a lot of, lot of room, you know, who, who's, who's going to get to talk? But once again, Daddy Arn, Arn Anderson puts it the best. The entire group, wait, wait, the wait, four horsemen. This, this is the total package. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Bob Cuddle, when you want to make one improvement in the greatest franchise of them all, you go out and not look and find what's available. You find the best and you bring the best to the franchise. And here he is, Barry Windham. High five a big man. Woo! Double A. Arn. 
to lay something out to you. One thing we've learned in the business world, if you want to ensure keeping yourself at the top, you take your top competition and you don't make an enemy out of him, you make an ally out of him, and that's called a merger. And God knows we are not only the best athletes in the world, we are the best businessmen. So what we've done is take a possible losing situation and turn it into a sure win in the form of six foot six tall bronze Greek god one bear Wyndham and what we have done is ensure ourselves to be the dominant team throughout the 80s possibly the 90s and there's an old saying something about and so he gave his only begotten son Dusty Rhodes you find yourself all alone it's either last week or the week before I talked about how sometimes I start recording the show before I've watched the entire thing. And sometimes I even make points that are then referenced by a guy later in the show. So it all works out with Arn Anderson talking about how they've basically solved the problem by bringing Barry Windham into the fold and then also made them stronger. So I guess you could call it a merger. I would call it more of a buyout than anything else. I mean, you're talking about a larger entity swallowing one up. But anyway, that's boring business details of that. And that does it on this very promo-heavy edition of NWA Pro for May 7th, 1988. Be sure to check out my good pal Steve Bennett, my occasional partner on the Adams Division podcast on his own podcast, The Sportscasters. There's an extensive catalog out there with lots of interesting guests. I've talked about them many times in the past. Joe Buck, Jeff Perlman, Jeff Passan. That's going to be more in style now with baseball apparently resuming. Although I'm not going to believe it until they actually take the field at this point. Although I did think about the fact that you're not going to be able to see a game because they're not letting people in the stadium. But there are two places where you can see a baseball field from a hotel room. That would be the Omni Hotel in Atlanta, which is right beyond right field at Truist Park, I think it's called now. I don't think it's SunTrust Park anymore. And one corner way up in the Hilton in Baltimore where you can see Oriole Park at Camden Yards. I highly doubt that I would ever be able to get a room up there, but, you know, just something to think about. I would also mention the Rogers Center in Toronto, but I don't think I'd be able to get across the border or I wouldn't be able to get back. Anyway, another podcast. we got the Our Vantage Point podcast, but they're episode 181 with their royal rankings of talkers. So they're going to be going through the next 10 episodes, the best and worst talkers of all time. I'm going to be interested to see who they have for the worst because there's a general consensus for the best ones. The worst ones, well, I don't know. I'm just going to wait to see if I'm going to be offended by anybody who ends up on that list. Might as well bring this one back while I have the chance with the video actually on YouTube, another exciting edition of YouTube Comment Theater. Now, these are actual YouTube comments left on the video by what I can only presume are actual users. Some of them even have little pictures for their... Uh, they, they actually took the time to put in an avatar. Most people, it's just like a letter, like G for Gary or whatever. One guy's got the Four Horsemen in there and it's this version of the four horsemen that just formed from the angle on this show that's e-man fxw says 
Barry Windham joining the Four Horsemen is my favorite heel turn in wrestling history. So there is definitely some love in out there about this. Christopher Haas says, Always loved the way Windham just hoisted Luger over the top rope, toted him to the middle of the ring, slammed him down. Big strong boy move for sure. Jonathan Turbide says, The Midnight Rider going into the heel locker room was badass. Real shame Dusty wasn't there to help him. <laughs> oh, yeah, I mean, you know, we just have to kind of invent our own humor, you know, pretending that that is not exactly, that that isn't Dusty Rhodes. BJ Cheney says the network had to lower the volume on the crowd's raw emotion and disdain just for people to actually hear JR and Tony clearly after Barry power slammed Luger. I'm surprised a riot didn't break out. And yeah, it was kind of rough audio, but a lot of that was from the crowd noise. Gary says, that's the guy I referred to earlier, is there a clip anywhere of when the Midnight Rider got Telly? I remember Telly in the ring. He may have just jumped someone. Then the lights went out and the Midnight Rider song started playing. Then when the lights went on, Tully had the rope around his neck. I don't know what show that was, but it probably would have been before this. Of course, the whole suspension deal leading to the Midnight Rider was him hitting Tully. As I said earlier, Will Shod says, Nikita with hair just didn't look right. You can say that again and again and again. This is Scorpio says, What was ridiculous about the angle is, quote, Lex will let you down. So Barry W. considers someone who is beaten down and barely conscious as letting him down? That's so weak. Now, that's that's an opposite tag. That's, that's not an argument that I've heard very often. Usually the argument against this heel turn is they literally just won the tag team titles. But I think that them winning the tag team titles makes the angle even more surprising because you've laid all these seeds and it makes people kind of forget about that. Now, Travis Tarrant says... I don't care what the fans say. Barry Windham's heel turn was better than Hulk Hogan's. Now, that's probably a minority opinion, but I'm sure that there are people out there who, you know, the the Hogan one I thought was uh, very, very good. I I wouldn't say the best of all time, but, you know. Roadblock24 says, Corny looking smoother than a Wendy's Baconator. Well, I I don't think Wendy's Baconators are very, very smooth. I mean, you know, the, the bacon comes out a little curly or whatever. I don't know. And Players Gear says, Lex Luger, king of the highly emotional promo. Like, hey, he brought a lot to the table there. And the way that they designed it with him watching it, I really like that. And I'll do it for YouTube Comment Theater. Be on the lookout for another GFA Live with me and Keithy this weekend. I, I haven't even decided what I'm going to do. I have a list of things for that show, just as I do for this one. But I'm I'm often undecided right up to the last minute because stuff appears on YouTube and I just decide, well, you know, maybe we should just do that. That's how the All Japan show from 1988, how we ended up doing that. And also, I, I kind of want to surprise him with stuff, although I think everything is done better when I tell him in advance so he doesn't have to instantly react to everything that's going on. So do check that out on the feed. Probably be on either Saturday or Sunday. Well, I said the weekend, so I guess that that much is obvious. I almost took this week off from doing the regular show because of how, well, the depressing landscape that is professional wrestling. Luckily, this is, this is a very promo-heavy show built around one angle. So, you know, it's pretty light, I guess. But... If you enjoyed this program, you know, you can do me a favor by going on to Apple Podcasts, whatever, wherever fine podcast reviews are accepted, and give a five-star review for Greetings from Allentown. 
because it provides what is known as social proof that you're listening to and enjoying this podcast, or GFA Live, for that matter. I'm going to just throw it on there. I certainly enjoy doing that one as well. So thank you so much for listening. Actually, next week, next week's show is going to drop, I guess, on the second, which sucks. I should maybe do it, I should maybe time it so that I could drop the show on the first, because my idea, and I screwed it up in my head, thinking that the first was a Thursday, but I guess I guess I have to wait till next year for it. However, I am leaning towards doing a WWF Maple Leaf Wrestling show, because it's now been almost two and a half years since I've done one of those, and I'm talking Angelo Mosca on commentary, who was one of the very early patron saints of this program. So I know that there's one from September of 84 that's got an Andre Kamala match to to beat the band. And then Andre's post-match interview is like the most pissed off you will ever see him. So I don't know. Maybe, maybe I should just do that one. So again, I thank you so much for listening. And tune in next time for another exciting episode of Greg's from Erica. Chipper!